0: Good afternoon, guests. Welcome to campus. I'm Dale Lunsford, and it's my honor to serve as the president here at Letourneau University. We are thrilled to have each of you here. Graduates, it is my pleasure to introduce your commencement speaker to you. Erwin Lutzer is pastor emeritus at one of America's greatest churches, the Moody Church in Chicago. The Moody Church is, of course, named for Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist who founded the church in 1864. The church began as a Sunday school that Moody organized for neglected children in a Chicago neighborhood that was known as Little Hell. After Moody's death in 1908, the church that he founded was renamed the Moody Church. And now, more than 100 years later, the church remains at work in downtown Chicago where the congregation is committed to the promise that strangers and the poor are ever welcome. In 1980, Erwin Lutzer was named the senior pastor of the Moody Church. Pastor Lutzer was born on a farm in Canada. He was educated at Winnipeg Bible College at Loyola University and at Dallas Theological Seminary. And while he was there in Dallas, he met Rebecca, who would become his wife. For 36 years, Erwin Lutzer served as the senior pastor, and now he is the pastor emeritus. He's the featured speaker on three radio programs that are heard on more than 1,000 radio stations around the world. Running to Win is one that I know well and I listen to as a daily podcast. He is an author and his book, Hitler's Cross, received the prestigious Christian Booksellers Gold Medallion Award. The Lutzers are blessed with three children and eight grandchildren. A man who has served God at one of America's great churches for 38 years is certainly deserving of our honor and our warm welcome. So graduates, would you please join me in giving a hearty Laterno welcome to Pastor Erwin Lutzer.
1: Well, like I told the group this morning after an introduction like that, I certainly hope that what I have to say is good and I'm kind of waiting to see if it is. But what a delight it is to be here. Mr. President, honored faculty, distinguished guests, and graduates, it's great to be here and to share this special moment with you. At Dallas Seminary there was a sign that said salvation is by grace but graduation is by works. (laughs) And all of you know how true that sign is and we congratulate you today on your achievement. Now normally when I go out to speak because I've been preaching for 40 years I take a sermon that I have preached before and maybe uh, redo it somewhat and make it fit but today I'm preaching a sermon that I have never preached before, just for you. I'm preaching the burden of my heart and my text really can be Proverbs chapter 1, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. It was the writer Tozer who said, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. A number of years ago I read a book by Martin Buber entitled The Eclipse of God. He was a theologian, actually a philosopher, a Jewish philosopher, and he talked about the eclipse of God in our society. And we're certainly living in a day in which we have the eclipse of God. We have what I want to call the radical secularization of God. God is being downsized. He is seen as being secular. And so human beings make up their own vision of God. It has been said indeed that God created man in his own image and now man is returning the favor. And for many in our culture, as well as for many supposed evangelicals, the God of culture impacts their understanding of God. The God of culture is a God that we need not fear at all. The God of culture is the God who is as inclusive as we are. He's a God who, do, who exists for us, not we for him. He's a God who embraces all religions and accepts everyone. He's a God like uh, a grandfather might be as he watches kids play and says... Uh, You know, enjoy yourself and at the end of the day, I'll pick up your toys and uh, a good time will have been had by all. Certainly not a God to be feared. Richard Niebuhr said years ago regarding the liberal God, a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And so we're impacted by our culture in our views of God but we're also impacted by the evangelical community. I see that in the evangelical churches today, there's an emphasis on what I'm gonna call permissive grace. Now let me understand and let you understand how much I love grace. We're not only saved by grace, but we live by grace. It's so refreshing to know that my performance is not the basis of my acceptance. Even when I woke up this morning, I reminded myself that my acceptance before God is based totally on Jesus and not on me. How liberating that is. But at the same time, I'm also seeing an overemphasis on grace to the exclusion of judgment. You hear some preachers preach and you'd never think that God was actually mad about anything. I see an emphasis on the fact that god is the one who unconditionally loves everyone an unconditional love is being interpreted as unconditional acceptance of my lifestyle there is a feeling oftentimes in evangelicals that the, in evangelical community that the old testament god was harsh when you disobeyed god in the old testament you were stoned to death and you were punished but in the new testament we're under grace And because we're under grace, it is now safe to sin. Because after all, we're living by grace. And so grace is being misused. I think one of the reasons that the New Age movement has made such inroads into evangelicalism is because it teaches that you can access God without specific doctrines. Everybody kind of comes in his own way and finds God within him or within her. And uh, everyone has a good time because we want to worship God on our own terms. And so what we have is this notion that somehow nobody has to be afraid of God. I think somebody has to tell this generation that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, or its equivalent, is found 43 times in the New Testament. And we must recognize that Even as today we take our Bibles and we refer to 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter talks about the fear of the Lord. Let me read it to you. He says, "'Therefore, preparing your minds for action, "'being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace "'that will be brought to you "'at the revelation of Jesus Christ. "'As obedient children,' The fear of God. Now what I'm going to do in the next few moments, and thank you so much for joining me, and graduates, I know you are excited about today, but my responsibility to speak, yours is to listen, and I've been praying that we shall end at the same time, all right? I wanna give you three ways that we demonstrate the fear of God, a legitimate fear of God. First of all, by what we believe about God, how we view God. You'll notice God says, I am holy, separate, distinct. And, and you and I do not understand, we cannot grasp God's extreme hatred of sin. We just don't get it. And we think to ourselves, we haven't sinned too much. But what if Jonathan Edwards is right when he says that the greatness of the sin should be measured by the greatness of the being against whom it has been committed, Edwards said. For example, if you throw a snowball at your brother as we used to do in Canada, that's no big thing. If you throw it at the mailman, it may be a little more severe, throw it at a policeman, you get more severely punished, throw it at the president or some other dignitary and you're in deep trouble. Imagine now our little sins in the presence of a holy and a mighty awesome God. Even the little sins become big sins in relationship to the being against whom it is committed. You and I must recognize that God is a jealous God. He may be said to be a God of intolerant love. Just read the Old Testament and read the New Testament. And you'll discover that the God that is revealed there says, I bless those who tremble at my word. I don't think there's a lot of trembling at the word of God today, is there? The God of Uzzah, you remember in the Old Testament? Only the priests were supposed to touch the ark. And the ark was on an ox cart. It was being moved and, you know, the ox cart hit a rut. And and Uzzah thought that the ark might fall and he reached out and touched it and God... God smote him dead. That is the God of the Old Testament. It's also the God of the New Testament, even though his economy is different. The Bible has a verse in the book of Exodus, excuse me, Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes that says this, because the sentence against evil is not carried out immediately, people think it is safe to do wrong, but it's never safe to do wrong. And uh, Martin Luther, He had a fear of God when he performed his first mass. He thought he might be struck down by God. Who am I as a pygmy standing in the presence of a holy God? You and I need to be revived in our hearts to see God as impeccably holy and separate from the world. And so one way that we understand the fact of God, by the way, Isaiah, when he saw God, what did he do? He fell down and he saw his sin. Job the same way. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees thee and I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. We see God. Now I have to say that a description of the wicked in the Bible is simply this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. First way we illustrate the, prove the, The fact that we believe in the fear of God is the way we view God. Second way is by the way in which we conduct ourselves. As obedient children, don't be conformed to your lusts and so forth, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all this conduct because God says, I am holy and you are to be holy. After all, we are partakers of the divine nature, the scripture says. And as partakers of the divine nature, we're to illustrate the nature of our Father. In fact, he calls God Father here. And he speaks to us as children. So he says that you and I should be holy in all matters of conduct. Now, how often in today's world do we ever hear about the need to live a holy life? I lived at a time when... uh, Christianity was often defined by the number of things you don't do. Here's the list of do's, here's the list of don'ts. And it was a very sterile kind of Christianity because what you did is people went through the motions and they thought that was spirituality. They did not know about an intimate relationship with God where you have a different motivation. But those old rules did play a good part in some instances in keeping people from specific sins. Today, all that is gone, of course. Today, we say to ourselves that we are ready to do anything. You know, that was the old generation. We're the new generation. Now, we don't have any filters. We don't have any line in the sand. Everything is permissible. Now, look at the text. Always keep your finger on the text. Peter says this, that um, knowing the one who judges us, "...the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, in light of that, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile." And he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ to which all Christians will come. There's another judgment also, a judgment where the unsaved are, but this is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. We're gonna be judged by what we see, and that's important in a technological revolution that we are experiencing. We're gonna be judged by what we do. We're gonna be judged by where we go. We're gonna be judged by the investment of our lives given all that God has given to us. Graduates, God has given you more than you can possibly realize. And I believe that one of the reasons that there are tears in heaven is that there will be tears of rebuke when we think of the lives we could have lived in accordance with the life that we lived that was so committed to self rather than committed to God. So the Bible says God is holy, you live holy. We live in the midst of an unholy world, but God says that is your calling to be holy for I am holy. There's a third way that we prove the holiness of God in our lives and that is by what we value. Now here we have a verse that I love. I love all the verses but the text now says, for knowing, I'm now in verse 18, knowing that you were redeemed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. uh, Boy, uh, that's one of the things that we value is the blood of Christ. Now let me explain to you that on the cross, the attributes of God resolved themselves. Love wanted to redeem but could not redeem until justice was satisfied. So when Jesus died on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him so that it would not have to be poured out on us and Jesus Christ's blood, his sacrifice on our behalf, becomes the basis upon which we now can come to God. And the Bible says that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come, it says in the book of Thessalonians. And if you wanna know what Jesus saves us from, let me give you a little window. In the book of Revelation we read, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken by a mighty wind, and the heavens departed as a scroll that was rolled together, and the islands uh, moved out of their places, and the great men and the rich men, And the bondmen and the freemen hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and cried up and said to the mountains and rocks, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The wrath of the lamb and the wrath of the one sitting on the throne. That's what. Can you imagine those people in the dens and the mountains and saying, well, I think we can come to God in whatever way we want. What a mistake they would be making at that hour of need. Now, students, here's the thing. Because of the fact that Jesus made a sacrifice and because of the fact that he's a savior, that distinguishes him from all other options. Back uh, many years ago, I was at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. 5,000 delegates met together for a whole week from all over the world discussing how they might be able to unite the religions of the world. And I decided to do an experiment because I was looking for a savior. So I went where all of the information of the different religions was available. And I went to them one by one asking the question, do you have a sinless savior? Because I'm a sinner. I can't be saved by somebody who's part of my predicament. Do you have, no, no, we don't have a savior. I went down the different religions. Students, look me in the eye. Only Christianity has a savior. There is nobody else out there like Jesus. Would you remember that please? And you and I have the privilege of representing him. He's the only one who can take us as sinners, declare us as righteous as God, and present us to the Father as absolutely perfect. There is nobody else out there like Jesus. Tell people about him. So, three ways that we demonstrate the fear of God. One way is by what we believe about God. The second way is by our conduct, our holy conduct. We live differently. And the third way is because of what we value, we value the precious blood of Christ, which is the basis upon which we were redeemed. You say, well, other people, other religions have a, have a blood sacrifice too. Students, that's true. But only in Christianity does God become the sacrifice. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Christianity is a religion that begins and ends with God and his existence and his redemption. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three words, because I expect that your life is going to be changed as a result of this. Whenever we open the Bible, we should expect that. And I want you to remember these three words. The first word that I want you to remember is the word worship. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, in light of the fact that we are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the scripture says, let us offer unto God acceptable worship with reverence and fear because our God is a consuming fire. You don't want to play with God, but you come to him in the name of Jesus and you learn to worship him. And if worship becomes the important thing in your life, if worshiping God, you'll soon discover that character is more important than your career. You'll discover that um, the ability to do something significant is more important than doing something that's successful, as God calls you into different vocations. And you'll also discover that God has all kinds of ways to guide you in your future. What he's looking for is your heart and your worship first word worship second word fear because if you fear god you need fear nothing else look at the words of jesus do not fear those who are able to kill the body and afterwards you know there's nothing else they can do but fear him rather who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell Fear God, and you'll not have to fear even death or those who would kill you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, you remember, they were asked to bow before the image and they refused to. And they said, you know, whether or not God delivers us, we will not bow. And they were delivered in that instance, though they didn't know necessarily that they would. The reason that they had the courage to stand against the God of their culture is because they feared God more than they did the flames. When you and I fear God, we will discover indeed that we can stand against this culture without fear. I'm not really afraid that many of you will be talked out of your faith because there are so many good and rational arguments for Christianity and the whole Christian worldview. What I am more concerned about is whether or not you will be shamed out of your faith. That's what our culture does. It wants to shame us. After all, you're so narrow. You believe the Bible, it's your way or the highway, and all that. And I, as a result of that shame, many people keep their mouths closed. Jesus said this He said, If you are ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation, I will be ashamed of you in the day of judgment. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. And if the world wants to shame you, you wear that shame as a badge of honor because you belong to the King of Kings and you belong to the Lord of Lords. And I can tell you this, in the end, he wins. He wins. Now, the second word then is fear. The third word is hope. The Bible says that Abraham hoped in God. And Abraham looked forward to a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The point I want you to remember here is very simple, namely, look beyond this world, because time is short and eternity is long. Look to this world, yes, but look beyond to the world to come. And by the way, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, it would be a great opportunity for you to do it, even where you are seated, to reach out to the one who can give you the hope about which I am speaking. And so Jesus was helping us and to understand that, but Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, and he was a sojourner all the time in the land. His nephew Lot... Not so much. Lot uh, was a sojourner for a while because he was with his uncle, but then Lot went into Sodom and settled down. And there in Sodom, Lot lost his testimony. When he was in a point of great desperation and he was talking about God, the Bible says that his neighbors mocked him and thought that he was joking because he had nothing to say. You do not need to submit to this culture. You are on a pilgrimage and this world is not your home. Don't settle in the world. Don't settle in Sodom. Always speak of Christ. Introduce people to him and you will be strong and faithful to the gospel. I mentioned Martin Buber, his book, The Eclipse of God. You know, when there's an eclipse of the sun, uh, the, uh, what happens is something comes in between the sun and the world, namely the moon. In fact, we had an eclipse just a couple of years ago, a partial re- uh, uh, eclipse. That does not change the sun. That does not change the S-O-N. It does not change God. God is unaffected by the eclipse He is still shining, he is still giving his glory, but something has come in between him and the world. Is there something in your life that you need to take care of that is blocking the light of God? Blocking the light of God to a generation that needs not light, but calls darkness light? And that's the generation in which we live what is it that is keeping you from representing God and shining the light of the gospel wherever He has planted you? Let's get rid of the obstacles whereby God is not so clearly seen. Now, if you forget everything I've said and years later you'll say, What did the graduation speakers say in graduation? And you're thinking back, will you remember this? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God bless you, God bless you.